Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Happy Easter. Department of Redundancy Department. Because how could it not be happy? I mean, this is it. This is the ultimate victory in the ultimate fight. I mean, we could almost just stop right there, couldn't we? But of course I like to talk, so, so we're, we're going to carry on a little bit. <laughs> the resurrection is the exclamation point on God's rescue plan, the story of this world and our story. And we need to hear the story again. We like to think of the victory and the triumph of Easter, and it's nice when the weather plays along, but this morning, it didn't quite. We're, we're still not quite ready to say, put away the heaters and the robes and the long pants and all that, because winter just keeps hanging around a little bit. Spring's always so welcome after the long, bleak, harsh deadness of winter. Our souls well up with hope again every time we see the trees leafing out and the, hear the birds chirping and smell the flowers and start sneezing and our eyes start watering. and Allergies notwithstanding, it is reassuring to experience life awakening after the sometimes brutal winter weather. And it happens like this every year. And every year we need it again. It's God's built-in reminder of who is writing the story. Every year is brutal to our roads, to our schedules, to our vehicles, to our bodies, and to our souls. This world is not G-rated, and we can't hide from all of it. We mourn, grieve, and lament when good things are lost. We rail, fume, and stamp about when evil is exalted. We remember our own sins and have to learn to forgive the sins of others, even as we suffer the consequences of those same sins. Now, going through this time of brutalizing of the soul is bad enough, but anticipating more of it is worse. How many times have we heard or thought to ourselves, it's only going to get worse. world's going to hell in a handbasket. Not sure why a handbasket is the preferred method there. Seems like a dump truck might be more appropriate, but whatever. Our souls weep and wither, and we become grim, disheartened, fearful, desperate, easily drawn into false hopes, or cynical despair. And then, spring comes again. Easter comes again. Jesus lives again. We smile again. We remember that our good God has not forgotten us or been surprised by anything. That he promised us trouble and persecution and still requires us to love our enemies. We're reminded that the end of all that is corrupted by sin is guaranteed by a God who never lies. We remember how Peter could do the impossible when he stayed focused on his Savior and how he was helpless 
when he focused on the circumstances that opposed him. Glug, glug. We remember that life is only to be found in Christ. I find that I suffer most when I look at myself as the main character in my story. I am least distressed when I remember that Jesus is the major figure in my life and that my Father loves me as he writes my story and that the Holy Spirit is in me to guide me. I realized recently that one of the reasons I enjoy so many British children's stories, such as Winnie the Pooh, Paddington Bear, Chronicles of Narnia, Alice in Wonderland, is because so many of them are told as from a father figure to a child. Third person, person omniscient perspective, often with little asides that the narrator gives about some of the characters. There's such security and confidence in a child knowing that their beloved father has control of the story and of the characters and is not going to ruin it no matter how bad it may seem in a particular moment. Now contrast this atmosphere in the mind of the reader with the movie versions of these same stories. Without the father figure narrating, inviting the child to sit and listen in safety to a known and loved storyteller. The audience has a very different emotional experience. The movie version has no perceived author, at least not as a character. No guide for the protection of the other characters. Consequently, we see these same characters change drastically in most cases from their original design. We find ourselves depending not on the storyteller, but on the characters. And we find ourselves often disappointed, as though something we were counting on has been left out. It's not the same experience. This principle applies spiritually. Are we listening to God's story as he tells it? To all of it? Not just the parts we like? Are we seeing how his character is like a rock through it all? Or are we looking at the characters, all of whom are human and flawed, and growing more disappointed in them? Finally, giving in to despair and seeking only to escape the story rather to engage with it. I know that I cannot control my own story. I can't. I'm doing good to control my thoughts, let alone my words and actions, let alone the actions of other people, especially on Highway 75. <laughs> and even if I could control all that, I'd be sure to screw it up because I'd be thinking only of what I could see and understand. My story would become as weak and as small as I am. And eventually an unbearable burden. You see, if you control it, you alone bear the responsibility for it. And all its consequences. I am therefore very grateful 
not to be in control of my story. I much prefer trusting in a good God to be a good shepherd. Being a sheep is all I can handle, and I need his help even for just that. <laughs> can I get an amen? There we go. His death, his life, his victory, his sacrifice. There is nothing more important than that in anyone's story. No one's story matters without it. So, if you and I are resolved to trust the shepherd of our souls and bodies, to be the author, the narrator, the storyteller of our lives, how then does that translate? How are our lives to be different from those lives that only trust themselves with their story? Three things, I think, distinguish these two very different kinds of lives. First, if we're going to trust the shepherd, then we have to trust the shepherd. We are not trusting ourselves to take care of things, and that takes guts. You ever trusted somebody else? You ever done this? You find out who your friends really are, don't you? <laughs> you think trust is easy. Try waiting on the doctor or the mechanic or the explanation from your spouse or your kids to get home when they are almost late. Or just watch the news. There goes the hand basket or dump truck or whatever. Trusting that the best is yet to come and that the ugly and the painful is just a bump in the road is hard. That's a clue that it is very important to do so anyway. As long as we try to stay safe in a life we pretend to control, we are in danger of idolatry because we're trusting ourselves, our strength, our vision, our understanding. And we are not safe no matter how comfortable we might feel. The wages of sin is death, period. For everyone, for all time, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can get to the Father but by him. If we're trusting ourselves, we will die in our sins. Jesus even said so. If we rely only on him, then, of course, we don't get to claim any credit for the blessings we enjoy. Humble much? When God leads you, it's not always where you expect or where others expect. Mom, I'm going to be a preacher. You may be called to places others don't want to go. Or give up things in which others get to indulge frequently. You may be led into lion's dens, or brought before kings and queens, or thrown out of places of worship or called to the pulpit. 
Hebrews chapter 11 makes troubling reading for our flesh. If you look at all the things the saints suffered, you can read about it in other places too. Now, we don't trust for no reason. We don't trust completely blindly in our shepherd. We have story after story in our own lives and the lives of this community, the lives of the church worldwide and the testimony of Scripture that all confirm God's character when we trust because we must. We know we cannot lead ourselves. We've tried and we've failed. We know the world will not lead us anywhere good. Again, we've been there. We've done that. Some of us have scars to prove it. So we trust in Christ because there's no other worthy of our trust. And because we trust others who trust him. I think it was Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses it for my sake in the gospel will find it. So we trust someone else. That is not the world's way. Secondly, if we trust God with our story, that's going to mean discomfort, suffering, trouble in this life. Yay? The cross is a real thing, a daily thing, a moment-by-moment thing. We are called to wrestle ourselves off the throne of our hearts and drag ourselves kicking and screaming to the cross for death. Happy Monday. This is the way. This is exactly what Jesus did and what he talked about. Leaders are called to serve. Empowered wives are called to submit. Liberated men are called to sacrifice and bear with the weak. And children are called to obey and honor their parents. Bill's Good Friday sermon has a number of further paradoxes along this line. It's not what the world, our enemy, or our flesh wants to think about, is it? We are, therefore, called into trouble. And we bring it with us. The series, The Chosen, uh, in the episode about the Samaritan woman at the well, it ends with a song called Trouble. It says, should have known that we'd bring trouble. Trouble going to find you here. Yeah, trouble. However, it goes on to say, trouble ain't bad. If bad is good, you'd make a little trouble if you understood. I like the picture of a slightly mischievous God with a twinkle in his eye. He's not a tormentor, but he's not afraid to rock our boats. And we all need rocking, don't we? Anybody here ever get stuck in their ways? A little bit? Don't go pointing fingers now. (laughs) 
in Eldridge's book, um, Beautiful Outlaw, he talks about the playfulness of Christ, particularly after the resurrection. If you, if you remember the road to Emmaus and those, those wonderful disciples, Jesus is, for all that we can tell, the one with the most reason to be the most joyful on this day, right? He's won the biggest battle ever. He's alive again, and he gets to share this with everybody, except he doesn't. (laughs) He comes up to these poor, miserable disciples and says, what's the matter? (laughs) Really? (laughs) He doesn't say, here I am, it's okay. Nope. And he lets them go on and talk about him. You're the only stranger in Jerusalem that you don't know what's been going on these last days. And Jesus is like, oh, I know. (laughs) I was there. The day goes on and he explains to them all about himself in the scriptures. God, what must that have been like? Hear it from Jesus' own mouth. And then they get close to the town. He's like, well, you guys have a good day. They're like, no, 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 stay, come on. He's like, no, no, I got it. No, stay, stay. You know, that Jewish thing that they do when they negotiate. So he stays with them. Then go to have a meal. (laughs) And you know Jesus has to be chuckling to himself. Because he goes to break the bread. And his disciples... And he's gone. (laughs) We We don't see that kind of a picture in the stained glass windows very often, do we? (laughs) This morning I walked into the elders' room to pray as we always do before each service. And there's Gordon sitting there in a coat and a tie, which he almost never wears. He looked at me, and he had this twinkle in his eye. He said, I wore this to confuse people. (laughs) It worked, yeah. (laughs) I saw so many wonderfully dressed men today in ties. I'm like, no one's going to know who's preaching today. It's great. We got Steve Staub in a tie. We got Chuck Shepard in the VeggieTales tie. We got Dallas who wears a tie and a coat every week. And we got uh, Elijah in the matching tie and handkerchief. Oh. <laughs> Hope I didn't leave anybody out. But golly, I, I love seeing people dress up sometimes. It's, it's fun. <laughs> but there's that playfulness that we sometimes forget about in the middle of this season that wears on us. After he's shown himself to his disciples, which is funny too because they're They're all gathered in a room, locked, right, for fear of the Jews. They still don't know. They still don't believe. It still doesn't make sense to them. They're still not on board with it all. And then Jesus doesn't kick in the door. No. He doesn't show up in a flash of smoke and go, ta-da! Nope. He just kind of sidles up behind them, just all of a sudden shows up in the room. Peace to you. Peace? (laughs) 
I'm sorry, but that's not the first thing I think of when I see the risen Lord that I'm not expecting. Peace to you. Man. (laughs) And then there's the episode at the Sea of Galilee where Peter and about, I don't know, five or six other disciples are out there fishing. Because they really don't know what else to do, right? They don't really have a mission. They don't really have direction. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Jesus is around somewhere, but he doesn't stay with them the whole time. And so they're kind of like, want to go fish? Okay. Got nothing else to do. Romans probably won't find us out there. (laughs) So they go fishing. And of course, as fishermen do, they fish and fish because they haven't caught anything. They keep fishing, right? You can hear the conversation. Oh, we had to try that other place. No, we tried that last time. Didn't work. Well, we're not working here either, so to use the right bait. Always use the right bait. You be quiet. So they fish all night. Morning comes, and they're like, oh, this is a great idea, Peter. And they see somebody on the shore and says, hey, did you catch anything? They're like, oh. No. (laughs) I'll throw it on the right side of the boat. And you'll catch some. That's the problem. That's what we've been doing wrong. All night. Wrong side of the boat. You can imagine how offended these professional fishermen were. That some yokel on the shore would try and tell them how to do their job. Except that this has happened before, hasn't it? And they remember who it was that told them before to cast your nets again after a night of nothing. And you can just see him, one of them going, hey, do you think? Hey, do you remember? Won't hurt to try, will it? I mean, we're not going to be, we got nothing to lose. We got nothing, period. And they get the huge catch of fish. And they realize that he snookered them again. No flash of lightning, no puff of smoke, no kicking in the door. He's just there. Hmm. if we understand what Christ did and why he did it. And if we understand what he wants us to do and we decide we're going to follow him, that means we should expect trouble. The disciples found that out. However, if we decide we don't want trouble, we decide to go our own way to seek fulfillment only in this life, guess what? We're going to suffer anyway. And we'll be under wrath for future suffering. We can't get away from suffering no matter which way we go. Because we need suffering. We get into some bad habits when things are easy for a while, don't we? We get soft. We get apathetic. We get a little lazy. Remember the cycle of apostasy in the book of Judges? Every single episode. People were worshiping idols and they're suffering, so they call out to God. He brings up a judge. The judge cleans house, kills off a bunch of people, and they worship the Lord, and they're all grateful, and then the judge dies, and the whole thing happens again, over and over. 
we have this idea that we're going to be tested by adversity. And sometimes we are, but I think we're tested even more by success and comfort. That causes me far more problems in my relationship with God than adversity. General Patton, General George C. Scott, General Patton said, God save us from our friends. We can handle the enemy. <laughs> While I don't agree about the enemy part, I do think God has to save us from those friendly things that come between us and him. C.S. Lewis reminds us that we are too easily satisfied with the temporary things we find in this world. Stephen Curtis Chapman sings, I'm playing Game Boy, standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. I'm eating candy, sitting at a gourmet feast. I'm playing in a puddle when I could be swimming in the ocean. Tell me, what's the deal with me? Wake up and see the glory. Suffering cures a lot of these issues. Pain clears your mind and puts things in perspective. Lack, having to go without, makes us appreciate the good things when we can't have them and when we can. Lent is the season that ends with the feasting of Easter, and it's a good reminder. During Lent, for six weeks, we take on or give up something, not to prove that we can, but to remind ourselves that we can't that we have to have help, that we are hopeless, and that what we wait for is infinitely more valuable than what we are offered by the world as a substitute. Taste and see that the Lord is good, but God will destroy both the stomach and food. The kingdom of heaven, as Dave Troutman reminds our house church on a regular basis, is neither food nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. May God make us uncomfortable enough in this life to keep us from forgetting our true home. In the song, Land of the Free, Andrew Peterson sings to a friend in a third world setting, I'm just a little jealous of the nothing that you have. You're unfettered by the wealth of a world we pretend is going to last. I'm shackled by the comfort of my couch. I wish I had the courage to deny these of myself and start to store my treasure in the clouds. May you never be so happy that you forget about your home, your home in the land of the free. We cannot, we will not find satisfaction on this planet for all our true desires and longings. We find hints and tastes and seasons and moments, but they all fade. None fills us completely or permanently. How could it? We have eternity in our hearts, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11. And the world of copies, shadows, and dust can hardly hope to cope and fill the human soul that God made to fit only himself. So we see that we must suffer and that we benefit from it, but we still don't want to undergo any more than we have to, right? Maybe God could shorten the suffering? We don't really have confidence we can suffer very long, do we? Suffer for a second? Sure, I can do that. We can all do that. We've done it in so many ways already in this life. Exercise. Biting our tongues. Staying under the speed limit. Allowing our child to pick that one bedtime story. 
You all know which one it is. We're actually kind of proud of what we've endured, haven't we? Aren't we? We gain a little self-respect, a little bit of swagger when we remember what came up against us that didn't beat us, how we didn't give up when it would have been easy to do so. Those moments. That is how all the sufferings of this life will feel when our life is over. Moments. Compare these mere moments to the life we have waiting for us on the other side of the veil. Even more than the reward of enduring, we will see him face to face at last. We will walk with him and talk with him, free from all the stain and pain of sin and self. If we can just hang on, just do it one more time, just hold out for a few weeks, a few days, a few minutes more. If, oh, the potential in that word. What will you wish you would have done when the part of the story you walked in finally comes to an end and God welcomes you into his arms? This is what haunts me every time I think about skydiving. See, I know there are safeguards. I know parachutes work. And I know that the statistical likelihood of dying while skydiving is lower than getting trampled to death by mice or something. <laughs> but I don't want my first words in heaven to be, man, that was unnecessary. <laughs> or why didn't I wait? Or what if I hadn't given in? Suffering has to be embraced if we're to follow Christ from this world into the next and into his presence. So, we trust in another storyteller. We expect suffering. And third, we can walk in freedom, hope, joy, and peace. That's very different from the way the world walks. We didn't invent the God we serve. So we don't have to have all the answers. It's not my book. I just read it. We have supernatural power over our bodies, emotions, and weaknesses that the world cannot have. Of course we experience greater freedom from the traps and disappointments of this world. We have revelation about what to expect from this life so that we don't have to be in despair about the effects of sin or how others don't measure up or even how we don't measure up. We know we don't have to because Jesus does and he stands for us. We have forgiveness because we have a savior. We have the truth from the one who invented it. We follow someone who loves us, works things for our good when there's nothing we can do and has promised never to leave us. Of course we have joy when circumstances and feelings are against us. Of course we have peace. Our Savior gave it to us. Of course we're confusing to the world. We have the testimonies of our own lives to show God's faithfulness over and over and over again. Of course we can believe what he says. 
We've seen it come to pass. We were there. We know our sinfulness. So, of course, we don't expect to be saved by our own hand or be able to control our lives. We know better. We know the adventure of being led by him. How can we not be like Jesus when he lives inside of us? How can we ever be like the world again? Until you have that power, that peace, that hope, that comfort, that certainty inside of you, life is just one big, never-ending, hopeless power struggle. It really isn't anything else. But as you begin to walk with your Savior, as you trust His Word and obey the truth you know, you start to notice that you have something to offer others that they are missing. People will ask you things. People will tell you things and even keep things from you because of the spirit that lives in you. People can tell. People want the Jesus in you. Share him. Point to him. And by the way, this is a good test for the genuineness of a relationship. Do people come to you because you point to Jesus or do they leave you when you bring him up? People need to know that if you come, your Jesus comes with you. You're a package deal. Now, this package deal isn't automatic. It only happens when you decide that you'd rather die with Jesus than live without him. Ironically, once you choose him, you find the opposite taking place. Life with him rather than dying apart from him. But that's what he does. He transforms broken to healed, hostile to loving, weak to strong, doubting to certain, deceptive to faithful. He can and will transform each of us from the wretched, miserable, imprisoned creatures we are apart from him into creatures able to see him as he is, able to be completely at peace, able to live with him as he lived with us all those years ago. All it takes is your permission because he will not force you to love him or serve him or receive all that he offers. If you would, please stand with me. If you do not belong to him, if you do not love him as your friend and serve him as Lord and Savior, if you have not received forgiveness for your sins and you've decided you want that, I encourage you to come forward as this song plays. Elders will pray with you as you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior and give your life to him. We want to welcome you to the family and help you grow as you walk with Christ in the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
with lesser 